Hey friends, this is Holly Goodman, and you're listening to Isaac's Autism Wild Podcast, where we focus on topics related to raising loved ones touched by autism and its impact on relationships and family. I'll be sharing some of my personal parenting experiences, raising my son Isaac, who passed away in 2007, as well as an entirely different parenting experience as I now raise my son Caleb, who never ceases to blow my mind with his beautiful autism perspectives. So grab a drink and join me as I interview this week's group of exceptional autism parents. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Isaac's Autism Wild podcast. Today, we are talking about things we wish everyone knew about autism. I spend a great deal of my time doing first responder training on autism, as well as for teachers. And part of what I do through that presentation and that training is I try to dispel a lot of the myths that the community has about what they think autism is. And so I thought to myself, wouldn't it be interesting to have a podcast with some other families and ask that same question? What are things, if you could pick a few handful of things, what would those be um, that you would like the community to know about what autism really is? I always think you guys are, you're on social media, you see those memes about like what my mom thinks I do as a, you know, like veterinarian. And then it's all these different little pictures. And then what I actually do as a veterinarian and I, and it, they have them for everything. And um, I just thought, oh my gosh, that would be so, if we made a collage of, you know, what the community thinks autism is and what like, you know, those pictures would look like versus what little snapshots of autism, what it truly is by, you know, that families have. And it also ranges to because I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what autism is for those who have kiddos that are higher functioning. Because again, I have said this, I've said it once, I've said it probably a dozen times in the course of this podcast is that Rain Man did us no favors. That movie Rain Man really set some very stereotypical concepts of what autism is. And so those have lingered because, you know, for some people, that's their only association, their only knowledge of autism is that they once watched a movie called Brain Man. And so what people see as um, stereotypes of autism, I find are directly related to how they portrayed that particular character. So let's start with you, Farah, since you're, we're still recording remotely thanks to COVID. Let's start with Farah. What are things that you wish that people knew about autism? Well, I think I think you're exactly right that that Rain Man did us no favors, and it actually continues on like with the Good Doctor. Oh, oh my goodness! Again, yes. <laughs> you know, and I think too often people equate in intelligence with ability to do something. Which, and I'm not I'm not going to describe that very well. For example, they they think, oh well, if you're kid, adult, whoever with autism is really smart and, you know, has all these talents or not, that they should be able to go to school and go to college and get a job and function easily in society. And it really has nothing to do with how smart they are, the the struggles that they have in going to school, in getting a job, in being in a relationship, they can be highly intelligent and capable in one area and still struggle in a lot of others. And it's not, and, 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 I'm, and I've, I've explained this to some people too, in this way, I feel like if you take 
Down syndrome. It can be a lot of people with Down syndrome are very similar, have have similar, they have a similar look, they have similar struggles, they have similar abilities. I'm not saying they're all the same, just as all people are different, but it's it's a little more consistent, I think. And then when you look at people with autism, I think sometimes people think, oh, it's kind of the same thing, right? And and that people with autism are going to be very consistent in what they can do, what they can't do, what their strengths are, what their abilities are, et cetera, what their struggles are. And that couldn't be further from the truth. It is it is so different for everybody. And and yes, you do have some that some struggles that people um that that are are common, um, but they're they're just so very different. And um, I, it's like the the quote that I I'm not quote, but I commented uh, the other day that you know, like you said, like the good doctor or Rain Man or whatever on TV, it's often portrayed as oh, people with autism have these amazing you know incredible savant like mm-hmm. abilities. Yes, and some do. Absolutely. Just like some neurotypical people are, you know, have off the charts abilities, whether it's athletic or intellectual or whatever, but not everybody does. And those are, I would say it's more unusual than it is usual to, to have those savant like abilities. Yeah. And, um, and that makes it hard to, yeah. Expectations, expectations, I think are skewed because of that. Because you're absolutely right. And I actually, it's so funny that you bring that up because if I was going to list, you know, what I wish everyone knew about autism, that whole concept of like, you know, that they're savants, or if you're high functioning autism, then you're a savant. Um, Because it's just, I think it's really insulting when people say, oh, what's your special ability? Well, what, what are you talking about? Like, this isn't like a dog that performs a trick. Like when I you know, say, oh, now's the time, like perform. Um, but I think I Googled it one time and I don't know how the site or if it was, you know, how reputable it was, but it, uh, it was a parent commenting like in social media in that context. But it's like in true, and, you know, it's actually more accurate that like less than 15% of individuals with autism are actually officially classified as savants in some capacity. Uh, and then there's another statistic out there that says that actually, only 40% of individuals diagnosed with autism or high functioning autism actually have above average intelligence. So their IQs, only 40% of people have what they consider to be a high IQ. And then with that, just because you have an IQ, that doesn't mean that your social IQ matches your intelligence IQ, because, you know, there's multiple things that go into how adaptable a person can be. So you could have a very high IQ, but if you don't have a social IQ to be able to you know, help you navigate life and be successful, then what good is having a high IQ? And then there's like what you're saying, Farah, is splinter skills. They might be super interested and know all there is to know about X, Y, or Z, but you would be really probably surprised if you talk to them on another topic, how little they know, because if they don't care, if they're not interested in it, then they don't put the time and effort into learning more. So it's very, in our world, we have what we call splinter skills, where his knowledge base is, is exceptional in some areas, um, like, you know, solar system was one that he was super fascinated for a while. Now he's really into like biology and wildlife biology in particular. 
And so what was really frustrating for me, and I had blows with schools in the past, is, is that the concept even from the teacher is, well, if he is capable of memorizing all of the stuff related to the solar system or all of the stuff related to the wildlife biology facts, then why that it that I am not going to accept that he is incapable of memorizing a times table. You know what I mean? And that was so frustrating to me because, you know, we have since then learned that, you know, Caleb has dyscalculia, which is essentially dyslexia when it comes to numbers. So for a, a teacher, you know, in the educational setting to just put their feet down and just, you know, could not accept that his brain couldn't. Because um, it was really from, from where her perspective was, this was, you know, his, his, this was a choice and he was deliberately choosing to pick and choose what material he was wanting to learn and what he was refusing to engage with. And it was a behavioral issue versus the fact that, you know, because of his autism, you know, numbers are always going to be difficult. And, you know, again, if we could create a situation where we could use some of his natural interests to create interest in some of these other things they wanted him to learn that we would find more success. And that was just like too much work and he's just being difficult. He is high functioning. Um, and therefore he is perfectly capable of doing X, Y, and Z. And, you know, kids with, you know, and young adults and adults with high functioning autism, ASP level one or Asperger's, the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, still tells us they require support. And yet, because they can talk and they can function at this real high adaptive level, and again, you know, some of them are incredibly talented and smart, that therefore it should translate to all areas of their life. And to me, I guess, you know, as a parent, I would want everyone to understand that it doesn't work like that. You know, Caleb doesn't just wake up one day and decide... I refuse to learn anything about asexual reproduction today because I just, you know, like I'm just making the decision. Um, it's just that because it's not a natural interest for him, like he just, it really has to do with that. And so I don't know, Tani, I saw you shake your head because you're also joining us today. You shook your head. Yes. So tell me like, so, you know, we've talked a few about a few of these things, but what would be one thing, a handful of things that you would want to share with parents or the community about, you know, what you wish people knew about autism? Well, first off, I'm going to say I completely agree with you. I also have a higher functioning child, especially when it comes to like people meet him and he can talk, he can hold conversations and stuff, but his ability, but adaptively, he really struggles. And so like, so under the DSM, he's now classified as a level two, even though he's extremely verbal, he has an excellent memory when it comes to things that he's interested in, but his ability to like, be adaptive and flexible and social skills all pull down. And so he gets a level two, which means he needs like more support than like a level one, like who's more higher functioning in that area because he just struggles with the adaptive part. And he also has very splintered like skills. Like if it interests him, like right now he's in natural disasters. He can tell you all sorts of things about tornadoes, how they're formed, all that stuff. But math, Again, same thing. He he doesn't have a math disability, but he hates it so much that his ability to remember how to do like some like certain steps with math is really, really difficult for him. Also applies to social skills. So Logan has a good memory. He's 10 years old. And in speech today, it's really funny. He does speech with another kid on Zoom. His speech pathologist can give him all different social scenarios and he can tell you the correct way to respond to every single scenario. 
Okay. So he's really good. Like he knows how he should act, should respond to certain things. But when it comes to the situation, he can't apply anything that he knows. So like he, he knows in his head how he should respond, but he, his ability to apply that knowledge to actual like social skills isn't there. Well, and that makes sense. I'm listening to a book on Audible that's called Beyond Behaviors. And that's one of the things that they talk about in this is that, you know, when you're not in a place where you're emotionally, you're like regulated, like that Mm -hmm. cortex doesn't engage. And so well be it when he's totally relaxed and he's in Mm -hmm. like a non-anxious state, he can rationalize how he should respond behaviorally in those certain circumstances. But when he's in the midst of that situation, his anxiety is, but he's not able to access that part of his brain because that. No. And I usually can't talk. I usually can't talk to him about the situation until he has completely calmed down. And then I'll be like, so what should you have done probably instead? What would have been a better decision? And then he can tell me, but I have to wait till he's completely like that state of anxiety is over and that he's completely calm and he can tell me what he should have done. But in that moment, he's unable to really do that. Yes. And And here's what I like to say when I do trainings for first responders, I always ask, you know, again, you know, the same way when we talk about communication, communication diminishes, the more anxious and frustrated we are, our ability to articulate our thoughts, feelings, and ideas diminishes. How many times have you gone into an argument with somebody? And after the fact, after the argument's over, or the disagreement is over, and you've gone back later on, you're like, oh, I wish I would have said all the things. Like, oh, there's so many things I could have said. The reason why you can't is because your prefrontal cortex is not accessible during that time when you're high anxiety, when you're in the middle of conflict, your emotional regulation is off. And so that doorway to that closet where you would normally be able to access those things closes. And the one thing I will say is that in this particular um, Audible book that I'm listening to, and I'll have Anna put a link in the, the show notes for you, it does say that over time and through maturity, um, they can then start accessing that information when they need it, when they are more anxious and they, you know, it's, so emotional regulation gets better so they can access that, that, I call it the closet where all of those things are stored. And so they can get to it when, you know, it's not, there's not a fire going on around us, right? But um, but the, what they're saying is, is that another misconception is, is that, oh, well, you're at this age, you should be able to do this by now. And the reality is, is that kids get to that point um, and adults get to that point when they get to that point. So for some, it might be, teenagers, maybe they're in their early 20s, maybe they're in their late 20s, or even in their 30s before they're able to actually, you know, have better emotional control so they can rationalize how they should react in certain situations, which leads to one of my other points too, which you're, you're leading into me perfectly is that one of the frustrating things I, I wish that everyone understood is, is that autism is not a disorder of, of bad behaviors. The behaviors yeah. are there because they can't emotionally regulate and respond appropriately in the moment to what's happening. I feel like anxiety is very misunderstood. Oh, yeah. And how to respond to it. So when my son acts out, 95% of the time, it's due to something anxiety. Yeah. And people respond by wanting to like give discipline or consequences. And when you need to treat it more like he, in a way, like a panic attack. He is literally having this internal like panic about something and it's displaying itself as behavior. Yeah. But most people I've encountered just don't 
really grasp that. And so then they treat it like a discipline problem. Like, and it's not that he's choosing to behave badly, badly. It's that his anxiety is so high. He's literally panicking inside and he just is unable to handle the situation. Well, and, and I think too, at least for my son, for sure, even, even still at 23 at his age, I think a lot of times they either don't know how or they don't really address those feelings that are just like bubbling up inside. And and I equate it to like a pressure cooker and it is just building up and building up and building up and building up. And then instead of where we might, you know, release the valve a little bit and let some of that pressure off, we would go do some self-care or we'd go find something we enjoyable, you know, when we get stressed and emotional and upset or whatever, and we, we learn to let it out a little at a time for him. And, and, and it's kind of always been this way. It's not a little at a time it's build up, build up, build up, build up. And then it's explode the top off. Mm-hmm. And, and then you just kind of have to deal with the mess for a little while. And then it all just kind of settles down again. But it's when that explosion happens and that, you know, the the mess of emotions and and not not knowing how to deal with it and just kind of releasing that pressure and releasing that stress looks like bad behavior. It looks like, you know, intentionally doing something malicious, you know, yeah, bad or <laughs> angry or whatever. And it's, and a lot of times it's not, it's just releasing that pressure. And then afterwards you realize if you just don't, if you kind of let it just go, it, it almost fixes itself. And then you're like, oh, okay, it's all gone, but you don't necessarily want to get in there. And which I had to learn for years, I did it wrong. I had to learn that that is not the time to teach a lesson to like you, you were saying, Tanya, to do. Uh, consequences or punishment or rationalize or anything like that. That is just the time to just kind of sit and let it go. It's, it took me a long time to, to realize that kind of like the, the panic attack. It's the yes. same thing. It's not an, it's not an intentional, uh, I'm going to behave badly, even though I know better. It's a, I don't know how yes. to let all this out and it just has to get out. And I still sometimes have to stop myself and be like, how, how am I responding? Is that really going to help him right now? And I have to sometimes catch myself because sometimes as a parent, it can oh, be frustrating so too. It's, it's and so I just, it's yes, so it is. Hard. It's really hard. And I have yeah. to realize that I need to stay calm because if I get worked up or stuff, that's just going to increase his anxiety. So true. And, you know, one of the things too, when you guys are talking about, you know, Tommy, I know that you are this person for your kiddo and fair, you are just in what you described as well as is, is that Part of, we know that, you know, they're little pressure cookers and you're absolutely right. Love the analogy where we, as you know, um, we have learned emotional regulation. So when we have stress, we're releasing that valve a little at a time so that there isn't an explosion, but with our kids, it's a pressure cooker. I think that's a great analogy, but one of the things that is really frustrating for me, and I wish that people would know is, is that I often get um, labeled a helicopter parent or that I'm very controlling um, as a parent. And one of the adaptations of knowing that my kid is a pressure cooker is that through, I can observe and I can recognize that there's stuff boiling under the surface. Now, keep in mind, you know, 
my kiddo is younger than yours, Farah. So you probably have to, you know, your son is in his twenties. And so you probably just have to let the pressure cooker erupt and then let it go until afterwards that you can help kind of get everything, you know, like packaged back up. But for me, I can start seeing that we're, we're having a buildup of pressure. And so I then, you know, it's part of the reason why we do have more structure routine and we do things a certain way is, is that I can control how much pressure is building in his pressure cooker by being able to control some of those things so that we don't then have an explosion that causes then a catalyst of things that then happen and go, you know, all the things you have to fix in the aftermath of a, a pressure cooker explosion. And so, you know, and I, I fight this battle with my ex-husband is, is that, you know, he is the, you know, just ignore it, ignore it, or I, maybe he's not ignoring it. I don't think he sees it, doesn't see it, doesn't see it. And then we have an explosion. An example is, is that he tried to take Caleb to a new restaurant. And number one, there was no prompting, but he didn't think he was going, he thought he was going to one pizza place, ended up at a different pizza place. And he'd never been there before. For some reason, his anxiety was already high because again, the pressure cooker, it just builds up. And then it became not a choice. We're eating at this restaurant. There was a lot of people and he started like just freaking out. And he almost like broke a plane of glass that was in there because he was rocking and just, you know, like having all of this, you know, like a meltdown, a panic attack. And it just got so much worse because now everybody's staring you know, I talk about damage to the restaurant, Reed's pissed and he's embarrassed. And, you know, he thinks that Caleb's just doing it because he wants, that's his way of getting out of the restaurant and just all the things. And so again, what do I do in my world? I have a list of places that I, we go. And if we are going to go someplace new, like yesterday, we tried a new restaurant and it's really not a restaurant. It's a fast food restaurant. But yesterday he was just having a really good day and we were going birthday shopping for my son, Tyler. So we were going to Target and I said, hey, Caleb, how do you feel about trying a Whopper hamburger? Okay, now that sounds like this is probably doesn't seem like this is even related. But part of it is, is that Caleb, of course, just wants McDonald's. Well, you know what? Like, number one, sometimes I don't feel like McDonald's. Number two is what if there isn't a McDonald's around? And so I thought, let's try a Whopper just because, you know, we have to get him used to it. And it just happened to be a good day where there was like, I felt like there was no pressure in the pressure cooker. You know what I mean? So we got it and he was like, we didn't go in. I did the drive-through because if we had to go in again, it just creates that more anxiety and stuff. And he tried the Whopper and guess what? Which I knew would happen. He likes it because it's really not that much different than a quarter pounder. You know what I'm saying? But it was one of those things where, you know, like I do these things in off time. So then I told him the whole message of that is so Caleb, just to like recap, like we had a really good day. We now can add another restaurant to our list of places that would be okay to eat at if we didn't have access to a McDonald's or, you know, he likes Caruso's here in Spokane. You know what I'm saying? So we, but we do it when there's zero pressure in the tank. And so again, how other people perceive this is that I'm just a control freak and I'm just, you know, like just rigid and I let Caleb dictate to me how life is going to be lived. And, you know, to a certain degree, you know, yeah, I guess depending on how you're looking at it, maybe, but it's just one of those things where I just know when my windows of learning are and when it's not. And so, you know, can I live with eight restaurants being in our repertoire for right now? I mean, we're working on it, but um, and I guess that's, you know, when we talk about, you know, behavior, 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 and what people, how people perceive our kiddos behavior as being making them bad kids, or that autism is a disorder of bad behaviors. To me, I guess, 
another element I wish, and you guys have kind of been speaking this to too, is, is that behavior is communication. And so for our kids, when they're reacting to their environment or a situation or the pressure cooker explodes, that is behavior communicating a frustration, overwhelm, a series of multiple things happening at one time. And so if people started looking at some of these behaviors and saying, huh, I wonder what their commun- what that is communicating, like what the problem is, I just feel like we would have a lot more grace and compassion with not just kids with autism, just a lot of different people. But I think that people miss that, that concept. Yes. And I, I also think that, and not to take this in a totally different direction, but to kind of add on to that, is that I think there is the perception, too, that autism is a childhood disorder. Yeah. And that you're going to grow out of it. And that you're going to mature out of it, you're going to learn, you're going to grow, you're going to do, and by a certain time, then it's not going to affect you anymore. Eventually, you get past puberty. Yeah, and you can ask, I mean, there are adults on the spectrum all over the place that still struggle. It may not, they may not be kicking and screaming on the floor, you know, making a scene at a restaurant, but that doesn't mean they're not struggling internally with with some of the same things or in maybe just it manifests in a different way but I feel like too often it's like oh well you hit 18 and you're a grown-up now you've you've grown out of this and you shouldn't struggle with any of these things anymore and it may be an adult now you're yeah it may look different it may look different but but the the struggles are still there internally and it's not something you just age out of. Greg and I had this conversation the other day too. I guess where I where I'm feeling frustrated for Chase is that we have managed to as a society to acknowledge and make accommodations for people with physical disabilities that are in a wheelchair or use a cane or whatever, you know, you've got elevators, you've got ramps, you've got doorways that are big enough, you've got, you know, adaptive tools, you've got, you know, braille, you you know, there's the list goes on and on and on. But for people with intellectual, and I hate to even say disability, but disorders or struggles or anything that makes it harder, it's kind of the, the attitude is, has sometimes, well, you just got to, figure it out and figure out how to fit in. And you've got to work with the neurotypical society and we don't need to make those kind of accommodations or any kind of exceptions. And you just kind of got to learn to figure it out. And, And not just with autism. I mean, that goes for lots of different things. And I think it is often forgotten because there's no visual cue, you know, there's, or there's no, there's no obvious way to know, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, Chase doesn't wear a sign around his neck that says I have autism. So people don't necessarily know. So the expectations are different and he shouldn't have to say, oh, by the way, you know, I have autism. Can you make all these accommodations for me? And I'm not saying they should make tons. It, it's just, I've, I've just found it very frustrating as he has gotten older, the struggles that he's had just in trying to get into the workforce and trying to meet people just generally. And it's, 
it's frustrating because we're, we seem to be just starting to get on the right track in schools with 504s and IEPs and at least some, some consideration. But um, I have found that once you get out of school and then trying to, you know, trying to find services through government agencies and et cetera, it's, it just, it's, it's almost like all of a sudden you're like, Oh, you're fine. Now you, you aged out of school. Everything should be good and good luck. And, um, and it's frustrating. I completely agree because, you know, I, we have to be careful when we think of the autism spectrum because autism is a disability for some individuals on the autism spectrum. But for, you know, like Caleb, he was actually like, thought it was preposterous that he saw a piece of paper. I think it might've been his IEP that was just sitting here because I was getting ready to scan it and put it in my electronic um, notebook for him. And it says on there that he um, does meet the criteria for a disability. And he says, they're saying I'm disabled. I'm not disabled because in his mind, he's thinking about, you know, more physical or visual or hearing impairments. And so, you know, when you think of the autism spectrum, it's difficult because autism is a disability for some people, but for other people, it's um, different abilities. You know, they have different abilities and they have different needs. And I think that it's really hard too, because like what you're saying, Farah, is, is that our kids should not have to wear a sign around their neck as, you know, young adults or, uh, or even adults that say, I have autism. We shouldn't have to have them do it. You know, it's invisible, but don't you think what a world we would live in is if there was just a little bit more generalized empathy and understanding and a desire to just, you know, I guess normalizing individual differences is really what I want to see more of is that I want to see normalizing of individual differences and that everybody has has different needs that help them be successful. Whether you're officially diagnosed with autism or maybe you have ADHD, maybe you have you know, um, you know, Tourette's, whatever the case may be, you know, you have individual differences. And I just feel like, um, you know, for, for some, especially young adults, it's like they're damned if they do and damned if they don't. Um, if you don't, if you're not forthcoming with the fact that you are on the autism spectrum or that you have another condition, you know, diagnosis, then you're not protected by virtue for like employment. Let's just talk about employment. You're not protected. So if you don't, if you're not honest with your employer that like, hi, you know, like I have an autism spectrum disorder. I'm very high functioning, but here's my strengths and here's some of my challenges. So, um, you know, if you tell them that you're protected, but with the same, to the same token, you're also going to be the first one that gets laid off. You're going to be the first. You also don't get considered for job advancements. Um, you don't necessarily get paid at the same rate as your neurotypical peers. Like there's a lot of like underlying discrimination that's going on when someone is forthcoming and says, you know, here's who I am, you know, here's truthfully where, who I am, which you can so easily adapt to that. And within an, you know, like an employment opportunity, but the risk of doing that is, is that there is just underlying biases and discrimination there that I can completely empathize with that whole damned. If you do damned, if you don't, because you might not get the job correct in the first place. If you say something, some employers might be like, that's just more than I want to I just deal, don't, I don't right? have energy for that. I live next door yeah. to a kid with autism and he was a handful. And so that's, again, you're dealing with 
with perception of what people think one person of autism, you know, displayed at one point, as opposed to the whole spectrum of autism. And so it's just really hard. Um, and I see that we have these, even these biases, I think even in general education with teachers, I think teachers, depending on their age group, I believe I am still seeing biases when it comes to general education teachers in terms of what their perceptions are of autism and that perceived, okay, well, this kid is going to just need an exorbitant amount of time, or this kid's going to have behaviors that I don't want to have to deal with, or I already have three kids with ADHD in my class. And so like having, you know, two kids with autism in my class too, is just going to be more than I can handle. And so there's just inherent biases that are ever present. And I wish that we lived in a world where we could normalize individual differences. And so then it became less of an issue. And I don't know if we'll ever see that. What do you think, Tony? I'm going to pick on you because you are a school counselor by education and a teacher. You're also studying, you're a substitute teacher. How do you feel about like, do you think that there are like, there's such thing as biases when it comes to like gen ed teachers and their perceptions of autism? Yes, because well, one, every kid with autism is very, very different too. And so what's challenging for one child with autism may be a strength for another. And that child may have completely different child because the saying's always been, you know, if you meet one child with autism, you've only met one child with autism. It's so different. And so you really can't compare having one child with autism to another because it is so different Yeah, for each and individual child. And I think a lot of times um, teachers who don't have a lot of experience with that don't realize how different it is um, for each child. And so they kind of can group them with, with a child they've had in the past who may have had autism, you know, and you can't, you have to look at that individual child and what their needs are. Yeah. And I think also like an elementary school more so, because I think, I think of elementary school is just more, um, it's just more, close-knit, you know, it's just a Mm -hmm. tighter community where you see these kids from kindergarten through fifth or sixth grade, depending on your school district. So I just consider it just more of a, you also can even have like building biases because, you know, certain teachers, you know, like out on recess, will see and, you know, and interact with kids or, you know, hear stories in like the, you know, teacher lounge or whatnot about kids, but as they grow and develop, you know, so their behaviors improve, other ones kind of pop up and change. And so I also think that, you know, like I see biases of a, you know, you might be familiar with the five-year-old version of Caleb versus now he's going to be in the fourth grade and his fourth grade abilities and behaviors are much different than what the fifth grade is. But if he was that little terror that was always having problems, it it biases a lot of the staff there even too, because you know, the kids do change. And so, you know, I don't, in middle school and high school, I don't see it. They're so segregated out. I don't think that you really, there's not the reputations that you get kind of within, you know, like in middle school and high school, I guess the child's reputation doesn't necessarily project to other teachers because, you know, they're very, well, they're not spending as much time with just one teacher because you're changed. You're mm-hmm. only spending a short amount of time exactly. with each teacher. And some teachers that you have in the morning might think you're just an angel and the teacher you have right before lunch or at the end of the day, you know, based on even hunger and energy, you know, you're going to have, they may see two very different, exactly. They may say to see two very different people 
Yeah. Well, and in the same at, child. Yes. Well, and Tanya, you made the mention that your kiddo hates math. And so your math teacher is probably going to, you know, have more of their hands full, especially if math is right after like fifth or sixth, you know, the last part of the day. Like that is the worst. Like I'm a big, like I am very involved in like laying out Caleb's schedule because like if math is going to happen, it's got to happen in the morning because he's, mm-hmm. I agree with that actually. Exactly. Well, isn't that funny? Yeah. And that's my thing. It's like, Hey, I'm just telling you your window of getting math in is between this time and this time, because the lo- if it's after lunch, um, number one, a lot of times he doesn't eat lunch at school because he just can't deal with all the extra sensory information and people's lunches and all the talking and all of the things. He oftentimes doesn't eat lunch because he's just too overwhelmed. So then you've got hungry Caleb after lunch with his medication wearing off. And now you're going to do math. Like, good luck to you. Good mm-hmm. luck. That is just not, that is just not a winning combination. Mm-mm. But that's also the same thing to be said for like employment. Like when let's talk about employment, same sort of factors apply again. You know, do I wish that, you know, again, you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, if you communicate to your employer, like, here's the thing, like, you know, I take medication. And so I'm, I'm much better in the morning, but after in the afternoon, maybe you're just not an afternoon person. Maybe you're not a morning person. Maybe your best time is like after lunch or even in the evening time, because that's just when you feel like you're your best self. But then, you know, again, you don't have the seniority or the whatever, 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 to be able to have some influence on what your work schedule would be, because it's like, nope, you're working mornings. Okay. But I well, morning person. Yeah. Well, cause, and I don't know about your kids, but Chase has always struggled with sleeping problems. And so his sleep schedule, I mean, of course, that's just a given every just about every kid with autism has sleep problems and either sleeping too much or not sleeping enough or, and, and his schedule changes all the time. Right. I mean, one day he stays up till four in the morning and then he sleeps all day and then it'll change, you know, a little bit at a time. And then the next thing, you know, he's going to bed at eight o'clock at night and he's waking up at four o'clock in the morning. And so it's, it's so difficult for him, even when he had a work schedule to, cause a lot of times he doesn't have control over when he can get to sleep or, you know, and he'll, he takes medication for it. And he, you know, we, we've gotten him off of caffeine at certain times and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But sometimes no matter, even with all the, the best intentions and doing all the right things, Sometimes they just can't get that sleep pattern right. And so if you've got a, well, you've got to be there at eight o'clock in the morning, you know, we've avoided looking at any jobs where he had to work early in the morning Yeah, because he, we just couldn't count on him getting up. And then one time he, he delivered pizzas and they worked him late into the evening. Well, but then he was so tired because he couldn't necessarily sleep during the day when he should. And so then he just wasn't getting any sleep and his schedule just got so off. And, and so, yeah, I mean, well, and you know, you have that problem with school too, right? I mean, everything the, the is, is very much on a schedule. And unfortunately his sleep patterns are not, there's, there's almost no pattern to it, right? There's no, consistency to, oh, I can usually get to bed and da, 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 da. And so then, like you said, you get a tired child or tired, cranky adult. And that's, 
that's going to affect you at work or at school. Exactly. And their ability to adapt. You know, my husband is a fire, fire, firefighter. So his ability to um, persevere with virtually no sleep is shockingly amazing. However, he's just, you know, he's naturally wired for that, which makes him a perfect person to be a firefighter. Um, I, on the other hand, like if I do not get enough sleep, like I am just not a good member of society. You know what I mean? It's just not something that I can do. Again, we all have strength in terms of, you know, where, you know, like John can, I think, gosh, John can go like two days without getting much sleep because he's done 48 hour shifts with just hardly any sleep and he does just fine. Um, I, on the other hand, would, you know, be, you know, like drawing with lipstick on the wall crying if I had to like be up for even 24 hours without sleep. You know what I mean? So, yeah. Well, before we wrap up, is there any other, are there any other things that you guys feel like you wish everyone would know about autism before we wrap up that we haven't covered? Probably the only one I can think of is something you and I have discussed a lot, Holly, is the perception that kids with all kids with autism just aren't social and prefer to keep to themselves. Yes. And I have a child who is extremely social. We'll talk to anyone. His biggest complaint about remote learning is that he can't just socialize with kids. Yes. Well, and that's another, again, when I have my ability, when I am training teachers or first responders or even doing community trainings, what that's one of my soapbox moments is that I don't believe entirely that every single person with autism, the reason why they, they don't have social skills is because they don't have a desire to have social relationships. I don't believe that. I mean, it is true when you get into the more severely impacted individuals, but like, and Tanya, you and I talk about this all the time. You're absolutely right. I don't believe that it's an instance of them not wanting social interaction and relationships with people. It's just that when you have, when you start stacking up the number of situations where a social situation went wrong, or you made a comment and you, cause you misread something or the way that you said it was wrong and everybody laughed or you felt rejected because you don't quite fit in. Or again, you can't find something that's your, I call it the least objectionable activity that you can do with another set of friends. You know, I think all of that just creates a lack of desire to keep trying. You know what I mean? And, you know, Caleb, it's so funny because one of the things Isaac Foundation is working on right now is a business model because we will in, um, the next year be opening up another arm of the Isaac Foundation that focuses on employment. Um, It will be an employment opportunity um, where we can help teach job skills because, you know, as what we've been talking about a lot is, is that employment is very difficult. And so it is a safe place for Isaac Foundation to be able to do it because we know what we're dealing with. We have a very realistic expectation. We're going to have high expectations, but we also recognize we have to have scaffolding in place for them to be able to be successful um, and even build the self-confidence that look at me, I'm awesome. You know, when you have self-confidence in yourself, when it comes to employment, I think it also translates into better opportunities. Um, But one of the things that we were talking about is, and this goes into that social piece, is that we're going to use the pet industry 
industry and use the pet industry to tie into this because, you know, number one, um, a lot of individuals with autism like pets in some capacity, but if nothing else, it's a, it's a conversation topic. You know, it's a very benign conversation, social conversation about a pet or the, you know, like animals in general. And so it creates kind of like a safety net for like social interaction. If we have like, you know, if let's just say it's going to be a, you know, a, a dog cafe, you know what I mean? All of a sudden, you know, you're serving coffee and pastries, but the segue is that, you know, someone might have their pet there. And so would Caleb be more inclined to talk to someone and go outside of his comfort zone to interact with someone? If he was asking them questions about their dog, I say, yes. I say, yes, they would, you know, see what I'm saying? So, you know, just trying to create some segues is that, you know, Caleb is a very social person, but, you know, with strangers or people he's left familiar with, if it's, if they have an animal automatically, they're going to be one step higher than the average person that does not have an animal. So Caleb would always be at risk of being abducted. If it's somebody with an animal or a pet or like, Hey, I lost my dog. Can you help me? He'd be like, absolutely. Give me the breakdown as he gets into their, their raper van and they're speeding off with him because he's, you know, because he's just so fixated on animals. But um, anyway, so that's something that we're working on. We're currently working on the business model on that one. But again, I'm with you, Tanya, as I really feel like, you know, not just, all kids with autism are not social. It's just that it's more challenging and people give them as they get older, there's less grace given for social situations. And so we start having more barriers. I feel like it's with, with anything, just because you don't know how to do something or you don't do it well, doesn't mean you don't want to do it. Yes. Right. Yeah. I mean, they may not do it well and they may not know really how to socialize, but that doesn't mean they don't want to. Yes. And I think the desire is often there, but the the ability or the willingness after they have tried and failed and tried and failed, um, sometimes then it seems like the desire isn't there, but it really is just I don't know that I'm willing to to keep put it. myself out there again and keep ah. trying because I it's it's so hard. Well, but, but they still want to. Yes, yeah. and I think in the context of this type of environment where we're creating an employment opportunity where it's safe for you to give it a try, and all the people that are going to be interacting with this business understand that they're supporting a business that is teaching social and job skills to people that have um, you know unique differences, you know, whether it's autism or another diagnosis, but, um, so I'm excited about that, what that looks like. I, I definitely, I'm with you, Farah. I, you know, Caleb's not of working age yet, but it's just really disheartening because you're not my only friend who has a, an adult kiddo that's struggling with employment because, you know, he's so, he has a strong skill. I was really hoping his, um, his holiday job at Best Buy was going to work out because it's like, again, it's like the perfect job for him because he knows all there is to know about some components. But yet then when Christmas was over, it's like, oh, don't need you anymore. Thanks for coming and helping us out for the holiday season. And you're just like, what? Well, and then we found out later that Best Buy laid off like 5,000 people around the country. So it wasn't surprising that they weren't keeping on their seasonal employees when they were getting ready to lay off a bunch of regular employees. But yes, it was, it was very frustrating. And you think, Oh, we found it. This is perfect. We got it finally. And then nope. Sorry. Just just kidding. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a frustrating 
We're process. not opening anything close to a Best Buy, but I know we you and I have <laughs> talked at great length about the fact that yeah. we definitely need to set our young people up more for success when it comes to the workforce. And so by God, we're going to try. I'm not quite sure exactly how it's going to look, but we're going to try and we're going to build it. So um, it will be great. Um, all right. Well, thank you guys for joining me for this episode of Isaac's Autism Well podcast, and we will catch you next time. And that's it for now. If you want to be notified of our next podcast release, be sure to hit subscribe. And just remember, we're all in this together. So find your tribe and hold them tight.